the, the song we've just sung, it now gives you an idea why those who regularly preach God's word also make attempts to study Greek and Hebrew to try and understand things in their original context or in, in which they were written. Now, I noticed a number, know the song in Bemba, because I could see the way you were struggling on the last part. And it has some rich words in Bemba, which English somehow fails. But we understand uh, that at least we are trying to accommodate the rest of you. Who can speak? <laughs> Bemba. Well, let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews and chapter 6. Hebrews and chapter 6 will begin reading from verse 13 to the end of that chapter. Hebrews chapter 13, I commence reading from verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he saw by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promised, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In a world where men, women, boys and girls put their hopes or their hope in science and in computers, many confuse optimism with biblical hope. Biblical hope is optimistic, but it differs greatly uh, from worldly optimism or what others have called positive thinking. Biblical hope is an assurance based on certainty and on truth. It's not based upon jovial dispositions that looks on the bright side. Christians, therefore, who believe the scriptures, treasure the scriptures, value the scriptures, must be a people of hope. We must not just be mere optimistic 
or optimists, but we must be people filled with hope because of the certainty of God's promises in Christ Jesus. So that as we live in a world that is dotted with confusion, trials, and tribulation, we show the world that our hope is not just being optimistic that things will be better tomorrow, but rather that our hope is certain. And that certainty is based on certain fundamental truths. And those are what God has revealed in his word. The author of the book of Hebrews was writing to a people who were facing hardships and persecutions because of their faith. And as he was writing to them, he was writing to encourage them to soldier on in their faith. Some looking at the hardships and the persecutions began entertaining the thought of going back to Judaism. And as the author writes, he, he writes to them that they must not abandon Christ to go back to Judaism. They must persevere and they, can, they must do so by putting their focus on the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he provides for them or that is provided for them in Christ. And therefore, he was highlighting to them a biblical hope, not just a positive, cheerful disposition, but a steady attitude of joy based on the promises of God who cannot lie. And in chapter 6 of Hebrews, he uses a metaphor that is only used here in the Bible, and that is of an anchor. And what is interesting about this anchor is that this anchor, instead of going down into the ocean as the anchor of the ships of this world, this anchor goes up into the heaven, behind the veil, where Jesus Christ, as a forerunner, has gone for us. And the picture that he gives is that this anchor that is ours in Christ is one that is right in the presence of the Almighty God. It's the one that takes us into the Holy of Holies, where the Lord Jesus Christ is seated as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And this truth is also relevant for us today. We may not be going through persecution as they were going through, but surely we've got our own hardships. We've got our own storms of life that makes us wonder whether we will make it to the end of the week, make it to the end of the day. But also at this particular time, when as a church, we are mourning the loss of our missionary pastor. 
There's need to remind ourselves of the anchor that we have, the anchor that holds within the storms of life. And holding fast uh, to this anchor is one way or is an effective way and proof that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the anchor of our souls is Jesus Christ. And so there are a few things I'd like to highlight through this passage and reminds ourselves of the certainty of our salvation in Christ Jesus. And the first thing we, we note is that God's promises never change. God's promises never change. Verse 13 to 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he saw by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And that's what we see in there, that God's promises never change. And the author of the book of Hebrews, as he's writing, he directs our attention to Abraham. Abraham exhibited confidence in God. And he uses Abraham as an example of one who through faith and patience waited upon God. And as he's writing, he has in mind the, the case in Genesis chapter 22. And to be precise, verse 16 and verse 17, where Abraham displayed his faith in God by his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. His willingness to give up that which God had required or requested of him. And God saw by himself that he would surely bless Abraham and multiply him greatly. And God's promise to Abraham was to make his descendants as numerous as the stars and the of the skies and as the sand on the seashores. But there was one problem when God made this promise to Abraham. Abraham had no children. In fact, his, 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 his original name or his first name was, Abra was Abram. Not Abraham, but Abraham, Abram, which basically means exalted father. And his name, which meant exalted father, at the time God is making this promise, he had no, no children. At the age of 75, he had no children. And 24 years later, when he was 99, 
years of age, God appears to him and changes Nali's name to Abraham, from Abraham to Abraham. Abraham meaning the father of many nations. He still had no children. He was still childless. And yet we see that the story of Abraham is a story of God initiating and promising to do something. And while Abraham, the recipient, responds in obedience and in faith to this God who initiates these promises. And as I've always said before, is that when we read these biblical narratives, because we know the end, we miss the tension that the characters or the individuals were going through. This promise of God to Abraham was not easy. Abraham's obedience was not easy. Because when you live in, and when you cast your mind back to the days Abraham lived, it was not easy for one to simply pack his bags and, and move on to the next, next town or the next country. It was not easy to pack things and, and head out. Keeping in touch with family or relatives back home through emails or, or phone calls or Google Meet or Zoom was not there. So traveling hundreds of kilometers away from home somehow meant a permanent separation from the people you love, the people you knew, the neighbors you, you grew up with, the community in which you grew in. It was going into unknown territories. not knowing whether the people where you are going to will be receptive, not knowing whether they'll be hostile or friendly, not knowing what kinds of foods they eat, not knowing what the geographical locations or features for the place where you are going to, not knowing what kind of language that they speak, would it be easy for you to learn? It was not easy. It's not like you can simply go and uh, go on, on Google Maps and check, okay, Ethiopia is an, is an hour ahead of Zambia, is somehow east of Africa, and if I get a flight, it will be about three to four hours I'm there. This is what I expect. You begin to learn the language, you begin to rehearse how to drink coffee. For those of you who don't, please, when you plan to go to Ethiopia, learn how to drink coffee. It wasn't like that in those days. You just simply left, not knowing where you're going or how far the place was from your country of origin. So Abraham obeyed God. 
It was not easy. But as if that's not enough, imagine is, here is a man in his 70s, appears in the land, in the land of the Canaanites, and he's asked, so what's your name? He says, no, I'm Abraham. I'm Abram. Which means the father, the exalted father. And then the Canaanites would ask, so your name is exalted father. So how many kids do you have? How many children do you have? Oh, right now, I don't have any. But you are the exalted father. He said, oh, in fact, by the way, my name is no longer exalted father. I'm the father of all nations. Imagine how that would settle with the Canaanites. A father of all nations. You are a man almost 100 years, and you have, the, you have no kids and you're still calling yourself the father of all nations, why not find a better, a better name that resonates with your situation? And so it wasn't easy, but Abraham believed God. He believed God. And when we read the end of his life, when he was 175 years old, he had fathered several nations through Ishmael's descendants. And he had sons with Keturah, the woman he married after the death of Sarai, his wife. But as far as sons were concerned through Isaac, at the time of his death, he only had the only twins born through Isaac. Jacob and his dear brother Esau. He owned no real estate in Canaan apart from a cave in which he buried his wife. But he died in faith, looking for the city whose foundations and architect is God. Looking at the city whose builder is the almighty God, the God who called him out of the land of his forefathers. And throughout history, Abraham did not see history, but God vindicated his, his obedience and has multiplied his descendant physically and spiritually as many as of the stars of the heavens and the sand on the seashore. And, and there's something for us to learn. There has never been anyone who has trusted in God's promises and was finally disappointed by God. God may delay the feasible answers to his promises, but he always answers in time, not in hours, but his time. Sometimes we may even delay the answers until we get to heaven. 
But the point is this. There's never been anyone who's trusted in God's promises, who's trusted in God's sure word, and then was finally disappointed because God failed to keep his promise. God always keeps his promises. He's utterly trustworthy. And he can be trusted. No one who trusts in God's promises will ever be disappointed. If God promises something, he will surely do it. His promises may look that they are taking long from our side. We may become impatient. And oftentimes we, we need immediate answers. And, and, and sometimes we want things to be done on our schedule, on our way, on our timing. But if God promises something, he will do it. So like Abraham, we too must pray that God grants us patience to wait upon him patiently, knowing who he is and that when we've trusted him, he will never disappoint us. He will bring everything to fruition according to his schedule. He will always vindicate himself. You and I make promises that we fail to keep. You and I break promises. Sometimes we even forget to keep the very promises that we made willingly. But not with God. His promises never change. And he can be trusted upon. But secondly, we note that God's truth never change. His promises never change, but also God's truth never changes. Verse 17 and 18 of our passage. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God's truth never changes. And, and, and there, the Greek word translated desire is similar with the word used for purpose in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible God to lie, we who fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope before us. In fact, it's in verse 17, sorry. So when God desired to show more convincing to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his 
purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So the root word for desire there used and also purpose is the same. And it points to a deliberate exercise of the will. A deliberate exercise of the will. And the Bible is saying to us that God purposed to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, which here refers specifically to the inaugurating of his son as a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So that those who find refuge in his son, the high priest, can count on the father to keep his promises. It was a deliberate exercise of the will of God. He desired, he purposed, he accomplished. And there you see the author of Hebrews at least hammers the blows or the nails to, to show that this hope is secure in Christ. And he says our salvation is certain. He says God's promises have never failed. That's one. And he uses the example of Abraham that his promises never failed. Then two, he says, his purpose is unchangeable. His promises never fails. And how do you know that? He highlights the example of Abraham. And then he goes on to say, his purpose is unchangeable. Again, how do you know that? He purposed to save the people out of the nations. He sent his son to die for the people. And then the third surety that we are given is that and his person is incapable of lying. Those are the three things we are given. God's promises fail not. His purposes is unchangeable. But the being of God, the person of God, is incapable of lying. He cannot even entertain the thought of telling a lie. He's incapable of lying. And therefore, when he says something, he can be trusted. His truth never changes. And, and the author is pointing us to that the purpose of this great God is to be glorified by the sending of his son to die for their sins. And that's why he says the hairs of the promise is to assure those who are his that God's purpose was to send his son to die for a people and to make those people the heirs of his promise. 
for the glory of his name. And he states, it is impossible for God to lie. And therefore, he can be trusted. His truth never changes. God is a God of truth. And therefore, what he says come out of his very nature. A God who is truthful. And therefore, his truth changes not. And those are the things he gives us. By those two unchangeable things, he says impossible for God to lie. And then those who fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before them. God's promise, God's oath are unchangeable. And obviously as I was writing to his immediate audience when he talks of those we, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement. Obviously the, the immediate audience, their mind must have gone to, to the book of Numbers and th Numbers 35 where Moses talks about the city of refuge where the man guilty of manslaughter could flee from the avenger of, of blood. Now these cities were a spiritual picture of the refuge that God has provided for sinners in Christ Jesus, and they can flee to Christ for refuge. It was a picture pointing to the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the refuge of all those who trust in him, and in him they will be safe from the wrath of the Almighty God. And he points them that those who've fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. If those cities that are recorded in the book of Numbers would provide some sense of security for those who went into those cities, how much more the refuge that the Lord Jesus Christ provides. Those who are the heirs of promise can flee to Christ. And in Christ and Christ may find refuge from the wrath of God. And here we see that the truth of God does not change. It is still true for us. We who are in Christ are safe from the avenger of blood. Because Christ has atoned for, their, for our sins. He has satisfied the Father. And in Him there is refuge. And in him, there is peace. In him, 
there is joy overflowing. And this is the truth that we must live by even today. God's truth never changes. Some people think that the Bible is outdated. There are others who think the Bible is, is just fairy tales. But you and I, we know it is the word of the living God. And to borrow the words of Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, he says, All men are like grass. Isaiah 40, verse 6 to 8. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. That's what we believe. And no matter how ancient the words of the Bible, they are true for us as they are true for the Hebrew Christians. God's truth is same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God's truth never changes. It never changes. You and I are prone to bend the truth when it suits our purposes. We don't want to look bad, and so we tell a lie, or we tell lies. We withhold the truth when it is to our advantage to keep things undercover. Yet, in spite of our prom propensity towards compromising the truth, we get offended when someone challenges our words, when someone calls us liars, we get offended, and yet deep down our hearts we know that we've got this propensity to compromise the truth. But how much more do we call God a liar when we fail to take him by the truth of his words. That's what we do. We call him a liar. And yet our God has never lied in all of eternity. He doesn't even have the capacity to entertain a lie. And yet when we struggle to believe his words, indirectly we are calling him a liar. That you can't do what you've said in your words in our lives. Yes, deep down our minds, that's not what we are, we are saying. Rather, deep down our hearts, we are, not, we are conscious that we, we don't call God a liar because we know he cannot lie. But it's the same thing when we fail to take him at his word, at his truth, revealed to us, in the scriptures, accomplished for us in Christ and sealed by God the Holy Spirit. God has given all these guarantees to show us that we who found refuge in Christ can count on him. 
And when we doubt his word, we indirectly call him a liar. That he said something that he cannot fulfill. And especially when we think that those who've come to him in Christ and have believed him for their salvation, that he may leave them along the way or that God may fail to bring them to heaven to be with him is us calling God a liar because he's promised by an oath to himself because there's no one greater to sow by that the heirs of promise even in this sinful world will be guided through and one day they will be with him in heaven. His truth does not change. Years may change. We are in 2024. Circumstances may change. Situations may change. But the truth of God's word do not change. And the third thing we see is that our hope does not change. Our hope does not change. Verse 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Bible there calls this hope as the anchor for the soul, a sure and steadfast hope. And the writer speaks of the hope of eternal life as an anchor for the soul. And he uses two adjectives to describe this anchor. He says it is sure and steadfast. Sure and steadfast. The word sure gives us the idea of not to make one stumble. That's the idea we get, not to make one stumble. It speaks, therefore, of something that cannot be made to stumble when put to the test. It cannot be made to stumble when put to the test. The other adjective uses is steadfast which means sustaining one's step in going. Sustaining one's step in going. 
It speaks of something which does not break or does not break down when the weight of something steps on it. That's the idea. Something that does not break when the weight of something steps on it or it's pressed on it. It is something which is unwavering and its persistence as it's because it can be relied upon. It does not break. It's steadfast. And this is something that is dependable throughout the period of time the validity of its dependability is throughout its time. And this is the hope that we have. The hope which the believing soul has in the Lord Jesus Christ. That our trust, our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ is not just for a short period. It's throughout our journey on earth. It will still be throughout in heaven where this hope will be now no longer be hope, but it will be sight. You know, just that we can trust the Lord Jesus Christ for a period of time. It's while we are still on this earth, we can trust on him. And whatever it is that is thrown away, this anchor that is Christ can be trusted upon. He will not break. And our salvation that is ours in Christ will not break. The world may throw all these things at us. We will not break because we have this anchor of the soul seated in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the hope we have. Not just wishful thinking. It is hope based on certainty of truth, the truth of God's word. The anchor of the soul is our Savior, or the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot stumble. We cannot break when we are with him because he upholds us in the palms of his hand, interceding for us and ensuring that by the power of the Holy Spirit we continue to soldier on even in the midst of those pressures of life on earth. And the author uses the anchor. He says, we have this hope that is sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And the picture that he's giving us here is that of the tabernacle. There was a holy place, then there was the holy of holies, the inner place, where the high priest 
only entered once a year. And even then it will be on the day of atonement. He will be drenched in blood. And he would enter that holy of holies behind the curtains in the temple once a year. And here now the author is telling us that the anchor of the soul, steadfast and sure, enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Our Savior Jesus Christ is there. And we are not just, we just don't enter this once a year. Christ is there. He's our, he's our forerunner. He's interceding for us. We, when we call upon him, we enter into that place where our Savior is. And this is the hope that we have. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, before his Father's throne, intercedes for each one of us by name. And we're not just in the holy place, we are in the holy of holies where God himself is, where God the Father is, where this glory of the presence of God is, where God dwells in the fullness of his majesty. And Christ, our high priest, is right there. And that's where we are with him. That's the anchor of our soul. That's the hope that we have. Our hope is like the anchor. It keeps us stable and slowly pulling us forward to the inner place behind the curtains where we'll be with our God forever. 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 And this is our hope. To enter the presence of God. To be with God. And to be with the people of God. In his presence for eternity. This is not just wishful thinking. It's a reality. It is true. And God the Holy Spirit reminds us as we live in this world. That this world is not our home. Therefore, as we begin this year. We must live in that assurance. Whatever it is that we will face, we will face numerous storms that will threaten to rob us of our hope in Christ. There will be storms of false doctrines that will blow us out of course. But the only way we are going to weather these storms is by holding family to the promise of salvation that, in, that is us in Christ alone, by grace alone, 
through faith alone. There will be storms of doubt where we, we, we will question the Christian faith. We will question even the very existence of God. And the only way we are going to weather these storms is by coming back to the truth of God's word. Coming back to the truth of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the bedrock of our faith. There will be storms of difficult trials. Would it, when they come, would even wonder why God is allowing these storms in our lives. We'll even, perhaps even question whether God loves us. Again, the only way we're going to weather these storms is by remembering that God did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us or over to us. He has promised that through every conceivable difficulty we find ourselves in or trials, the ultimate goal is our glorification. All things work together for the good of those that love God. There will be storms of defeat. Well, some of us will fall into sin and dis dishonor God. The only way we're going to weather these storms is by coming to the scriptures and realizing that we have a high priest who intercedes for us. And his intercession for us is that our faith may not fail. And that by his grace, we can be restored. Instead of continuing wallowing in sin and despair, must come back to this high priest and cry out to him for forgiveness and for restoration. This is the anchor of our soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what an encouragement we have as followers of Christ that as we journey as pilgrims in this barren world, we have hope. Is this your hope, I wonder, this afternoon? Have you trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation? If Christ is not your Lord and Savior, what is your hope? Where is your hope 
Is it just a wishful thinking that things will be okay tomorrow? Where's your hope? How will your hope hold in the storms of life this year? And better still, how will your hope hold on the solemn day of God's judgment if Christ is not your hope? But if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then your hope is secured. Nothing can break that hope. It's a hope that encourages you. It's a hope that is the anchor for the soul in the storms of life. Or to use the words of the hymn writer, he puts it this way, who trusts in God, a strong abode in heaven and on earth possesses, who looks in love to Christ above, no fear his heart oppresses. In you alone, dear Lord, we own sweet hope and consolation. Our shield from foes, our balm for woes, our great and sure salvation. This is our anchor, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a changing world, in a world where people trust, put their trust and hopes in computers, in aliens, in stars, or crystal balls, or wishful thinking, we have an anchor that keeps the soul. An anchor that has been confirmed by an oath. And that oath cannot be broken. Our hope is Christ Jesus. It is Jesus who is our hope, our forerunner. It's Jesus who's interceding for those that love him. And this is a hope that we have in this world that is changing every day. Ours is a sure and steadfast hope. Hope that is based on certainty and truth. Hope that is based on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as this year begins, let's live in this full assurance of the anchor of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's save him daily. Let's radiate his love, his grace through us for the world to see. Let the world know that the joy we have it's not just a positive outlook to life or that things will be better tomorrow. It's a joy that is sure and steadfast 
because we have a high priest who intercedes for us, who understands us and knows us very well and is praying for us before his father's throne that we soldier on. Oh, that this would be true of all of us this year. Those of us who know Christ Jesus and have come to him in faith and in repentance. Amen.